turn with me, please, to the end of Mark 13. Looking at the end of Mark chapter 13 this evening. It was a few Lord's Days ago that we concluded our flyover of the Olivet Discourse as it's given to us in Mark 13. And I want to remind you that it all began with a shocking prediction by Jesus, which we have recorded there at the beginning of Mark 13, in verse 2, when he says to his disciples, do you see these great buildings? And he's pointing to the temple complex. They're on the Mount of Olives. And he says, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And this shocking prediction of the destruction of the temple the complete destruction of the temple, led to a question of the disciples, question in verse 4, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And it was that question that prompted this discourse of our Lord. Remember that this discourse has two great focal points, like two great mountain peaks, one that is nearer and then one that is far and still future. So the first great focal point or mountain peak was the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple that was in Jerusalem, and that happened in A.D. 70. But there's another focal point, and that is the second coming of Christ, which is still future, of course. And Jesus in this discourse is shifting back and forth between these two great events, the destruction of the temple and his second coming. And we considered some of that last time in trying to sort out uh, the references there. But tonight, by way of further application, I want us to return to the last section of this discourse, which we find in verses 32 to 37 in which the focus is very clearly on the second coming of Christ. So this is probably the clearest section we can say, yes, certainly Jesus is talking about his return. So that's what we look at tonight here. And I want to begin by reading at verse 30 to give us something of the flow of what Jesus is saying. So Mark 13, beginning at verse 30, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, This generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And I argue that that refers to the destruction of the temple and all that led up to that. Verse 31, he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country, who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. Let's again go to the Lord in prayer. Our God, we thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for the way that you've already blessed the reading and the preaching of your word. 
And we ask that again you would open your word to us and help us by your spirit to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And again, we ask, Lord, that there would be some drawn to the Savior tonight. We ask in his name. Amen. Amen. The calendar of world history is full of great and momentous events. And that calendar for many centuries has been divided by a single event which went largely unnoticed at the time it occurred. And that was the sending forth of the Son of God into this world to save sinners from their sins, which Paul says God did when the fullness of time had come. So the birth of Christ, his first coming, divides world history. So we speak of B.C., before Christ, and we speak of A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, or in the year of the Lord. There comes another great day, and this day will not divide history further, but this day will actually end world history. And that day is the coming, the second coming of Christ, his return at the end of the age. And there's many texts in the Old Testament that pointed to the first coming of Christ. And we have many texts in the New Testament which point us to the second coming of Christ and urge us to be ready for that day when Christ returns. And such is our text tonight, which is the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse as we have it here in Mark 13. And what I want to look at first tonight we touched on last time, but to remind you and then just consider it in a bit more detail is the great burden and practical application of the entire Olivet Discourse. So our Lord's great burden and practical application in this discourse. It's summed up in one word in the final verse of the discourse, verse 37. And what I say to you, he's speaking in private to his disciples. He says, I say to all Watch. That sums up the great burden that Jesus has here. There are, however, two main burdens of the Olivet Discourse. This one, though, is the greatest. So one of the main burdens has to do with that first day day that was coming, the nearer mountain peak. Jesus had told his disciples of a coming day when the temple that was so magnificent in their view would be turned into rubble. And he said that the coming of that day would have its signs, that they would be able to read these signs and they would even be able to escape and to get away from the destruction and the tribulation that would come upon the people in Judea of that time. So he said they must take heed and we might even add that they should watch. But in contrast, Jesus speaks of that day and hour that nobody can predict. There in verse 32, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And in light of this uncertainty, he lays out his great burden and his practical concern for his disciples and tells them to take heed, watch and pray, for you do not know when the time is. Now, here's the first of four occurrences of the word watch in our text tonight. 
The first of four occurrences here. But the word here that we see in verse 33, it's actually a different one. And it means literally to keep yourself awake. So here it would be Jesus saying, stay awake. Stay awake there in verse 33. But then we find watch three other times. Verse 34, verse 35, verse 37. It's a different word from which we get the name Gregory. But this is a word to be on the alert, to be vigilant, to be watchful. So it's very clear that the call here that Jesus is making to us is to always be awake and to always be alert in light of the unknowable time of his return, to be ready at all times for his coming. Now, if we think about this, we see God's great wisdom in this, that he has concealed the time of Christ's return. Because had he told us very plainly when Christ would return, what would result? Well, J.C. Ryle gives a thoughtful comment here. He says that uncertainty about the date of the Lord's return is calculated to keep believers in an attitude of constant expectation and to preserve them from despondency, or in other words, to keep them from losing heart because they know that the day is so far off in the future. So we see something of the wisdom of God that he would withhold knowledge of this day to keep us ready and expecting. Now Jesus goes on to give a simple and vivid illustration of this great burden and practical concern. So look again, beginning at verse 34. He says, it's like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work. And commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master or the lord of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the crowing of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And the emphasis in the original falls on the doorkeeper and what he is commanded to do, and that is that he would watch. He is to watch, to be alert. His danger, the doorkeeper, and ours, because really we're invited to put ourselves into this little story, but his danger is that he would be caught off guard, that he would be caught sleeping, that his master would come at an unexpected time and he wouldn't be watching, but he would be asleep, not ready, not being faithful to carry out the task that he was given by his master. And I think this adds an important element to our understanding of what Jesus means when he's calling his disciples to be watchful and to be alert. It teaches us that the wakefulness and watchfulness that he's calling us to includes a call to faithfulness, a call to faithfulness as servants of the Lord, of the master of the house, we could say. And this comes across more clearly in the parallel in Matthew. So if you would look at Matthew, you don't have to turn there. But in Matthew 24, we have where Mark ends, he goes on to record further things that Jesus said. So Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Well, then he jumps into this. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find him so doing, will find him faithful, doing his task and not sleeping or doing something else. And then look at Matthew 25, if you have it open there. Beginning at verse 14, we have the familiar parable of the talents. And that's where we find those words, well done, good and faithful servant. So we need to see this element of faithfulness that is in this command to watch, to be awake, to be ready for the Lord's return. So I think it's right to conclude, as one man writes, that the sole preparation for the end is watchfulness and faithfulness in the present. This is Jesus' great burden. This is his practical application of the Olivet Discourse, that we wouldn't grow sleepy, spiritually speaking, that we wouldn't become complacent, ceasing to do our duty, neglecting our calling as Christ's disciples in this world, that we would be faithful, that we'd stay awake, watchful, always ready for the Lord's return so that when he comes, we might hear those words from him, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, before I leave this point, I want to stress this again. Because if Christ's message for those of us who are believers here is to stay awake, then his message for those who haven't come to Christ in faith is to wake up. Wake up from your sleep, your spiritual sleep and your apathy about the most important things in life and in all eternity. So as Paul quotes Ephesians 5:14, "Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You who sleep, awake, hear the word of God, hear the gospel as it's preached to you, as Christ again is freely offered to you, and wake up from your sleep and come to Christ, clinging to him in faith. So we see the great burden and practical application of our Lord. But the second thing I want us to look at here are the realities that undergird or form the basis of this call to wakefulness and watchfulness. So what are the realities that form the basis of Jesus' call to his disciples to be watchful and wakeful? Three things, very briefly. And the first is the certainty of Christ's future return in great power and glory. The certainty of the return of Christ and also all that his coming entails, all that's going to come with the coming of Christ, the end of the age, the resurrection of the dead, the gathering of the elect by the angels, the final judgment, all of this resulting in what we call the eternal state. So the eternal state for the wicked in hell with the devil and his angels for all eternity and for the righteous, for the redeemed, those who are trusting in Christ, their blessed and eternal state in a new heaven, in a new earth with the Lord forever. All of this will be ushered in by the coming of Christ. So that's the first reality here that undergirds what Jesus is urging us to the certainty of his return. But there's another thing 
And it's the uncertainty of the time of his return. The uncertainty of the time of his return. And it's actually this reality in particular that he speaks of when he urges his disciples to stay awake. He says, take heed, watch and pray for you do not know when the time is. That's in verse 33. Compare Matthew 24, where we find these words of our Lord, Matthew 24:44. He says, be ready for the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is coming at an hour you do not expect. And so elsewhere, the imagery of a thief in the night is used. He's coming as a thief in the night. And listen to these words in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians. Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning at verse 2, Paul is writing to believers. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they, speaking of unbelievers, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So the certainty of Christ's future return, the uncertainty of the time of his return. But there's a third reality that undergirds this call to wakefulness and watchfulness. And it's the spiritual dangers and the enemies of the soul that will confront every believer as long as he or she lives or until Christ returns. So the spiritual dangers and the enemies of the soul that will confront every believer. Jesus is well aware of this. So that's part of why he is saying this. The Christian life is one of constant spiritual warfare. And our three great enemies are the world, the flesh, that is our sinful remaining flesh, and the devil. In Ephesians 2, Paul describes the Ephesian believers as being once dead in trespasses and sins and enslaved to the world, the flesh, and the devil. He says that they were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, and conducting themselves in the lust of their flesh. But by God's grace, they and we, we who believe in Christ, were made alive and they were set free from this bondage to these three great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And yet, it's also true that every believer who has been born again and has been set free must still contend with these. So Jesus knows this. In terms of our text, he calls his disciples to constant watchfulness and wakefulness, not only because the certainty of his return and the uncertainty of the time of that return, but because he knows us and he knows our enemies and he knows our spiritual danger. He knows that we're prone to grow sleepy, spiritually speaking. We're prone to grow dull and complacent and even worldly, that if we stop watching, 
if we stop taking heed, then we might, by the world, the flesh, and the devil, by all of them or any one of them in particular, we might be led away into sin. So we find in the parallel text in Luke 21, we find these words of Jesus, Luke 21, 34. He says, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. In other words, you'd be found sleeping. He knows. He knows our dangers. So we have the great burden and practical application of our Lord. That was the first thing we saw. And then also the realities, three realities undergirding the call to wakefulness and watchfulness. But now what I want to do in our remaining time, the third section here is to consider how to stay awake. How do we stay awake and ready for the return of Christ? What are some scriptural things, some truths that we can bring out to help us here? Well, I have some more or less rapid fire thoughts that are drawn from the scriptures. So how to stay awake and ready. And the first thing is to get a firm grasp of the biblical doctrine of Christ's return. Get a firm grasp and let it shape and direct your life. Your thoughts, your words, and your deeds. And this is not a one-time thing. As if you can get a grasp and have your, your life shaped by this doctrine and then go on. It's something we need to be reminded of again and again and again. And to have our lives reshaped and redirected continually toward that great day that is coming. At the very least, we need to be persuaded of what I just mentioned, of the certainty of Christ's return and the uncertainty of the time of his concern. But there are other things regarding the coming of Christ that we need a firm grasp on. Just to give a few things quickly, the fact that his return, the manner of his return, it will be visible. All will see it. It'll be personal and physical, and it will be an awesome coming in great power and glory, a coming upon the clouds, a coming with the angels of heaven. It will be awesome. We should also know something of the purpose of his second coming, and that is to consummate, to bring to an end this present age and to usher in the eternal state. And this will involve the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, we need to understand that all of Christ's enemies will be put under his feet when he comes. We need to understand that the kingdom of God will be fully and finally established when Christ comes. All of these things and more we need to be persuaded of and reminded of and they need to shape and reshape and direct and redirect our lives. I mentioned this last time, but Paul is our great example here. It's been said that Paul has a fundamental orientation to the end of the age. And if you read his letters, you will, you will agree that is true. He had this orientation to that day. 
And he refers to this day in several different ways. Sometimes he simply says the day of Christ. Other times the day of our Lord Jesus Christ or the day of the Lord Jesus or the day of Jesus Christ. But he has very clearly his life directed by this great truth and the expectation of the coming of our Lord. So he is a prime example for us. It's like a bride-to-be. When a bride-to-be has a date on the calendar, that date is clearly in view. And we could say, in a sense, that she orients herself to that big day that is approaching. So until the day approaches, she's thinking of it. It's on her mind. She's working and laboring toward it. She orients herself to that day. And it's, it's the same way with us as believers. There is a day on the calendar. We don't know. It's on God's calendar. And we are to orient ourselves to that day. Even the day when we, the church, the bride of Christ, will be presented to Christ spotless, without any stains or wrinkles, will be presented to Christ and be with our Lord and Savior forever. So we need a firm grasp of this doctrine, and it needs to orient our lives. A second thing is to devote yourself to the regular and diligent use of the public and private means of grace. So devote yourself to the regular and diligent use of the public and private means of grace. And by means of grace, I'm referring to those channels by which God communicates his grace to our needy souls. So for the public or corporate means of grace, I simply refer you to last week's morning sermon. And we were looking there at the early church in Acts 2.42, where we read that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship in the breaking of bread, which is probably a reference to what we did this morning, taking the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. Now, the very fact that you're here tonight means probably that you are already committed to the public corporate means of grace. And that's good. We need to persevere in this. This is what God calls us to do. It's for our good. And if you're not committed, if anyone might be hearing and you're not committed to the public means of grace, I want to encourage you and even urge you to commit yourself, devote yourself to the regular use of these public means of grace as we gather together. Private means, especially the regular, and I would say even daily intake of the word of God. As it's been said, the devotional assimilation of the word, line upon line, day after day, as we take in the word, and it becomes, in a sense, a part of us. Also, daily focused times of prayer. Focused times of prayer. Watchfulness and prayer go together. So if you have the text open... In Mark 13, you see that in verse 33, take heed, watch, and pray. As I mentioned last time, it is disputed by some whether pray is original there, but prayer and watchfulness go together. And Luke 21, 36, the parallel there, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Mark 14, 38, we'll get there in a little bit, in the garden. Jesus says, watch and pray, 
lest you enter into temptation. Ephesians 6, 17 and 18, talking about spiritual warfare. Paul says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I think it's safe to say if we're not a prayerful people, then we are not being a watchful people. That we're not keeping ourselves awake if we're not devoting ourselves to regular prayer in private and corporately as we gather here to do on the Lord's Day and on Wednesday. Family worship, husbands, fathers, we need to be leading our families in staying awake. And this is one of the best and simplest ways to do it, to have a regular time of family worship. It doesn't need to be elaborate. It doesn't need to be long, but at the very least to read some scripture and to pray together. And there's all sorts of resources. Maybe make use of some practical comments on the word. J.C. Ryle is excellent expository thoughts. But if this is not something you're doing and leading your family in this way, why not start this week? This is a simple way to help you and your family to stay awake and ready for the return of Christ. Thirdly, in line with the previous point, is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Practically speaking, I think this is probably the best thing we can do to keep ourselves awake, alert, and ready for the return of Christ. To receive the gift of the Lord's day. This one day in seven, a day of rest and worship to receive and make good use of the Lord's day, I think practically speaking, is one of the best ways for us to be ready for the return of Christ, for us not to be caught sleeping. If we would rightly remember the day and keep it holy, I think we would largely be ready and be alert and be awake. At the very least, least, this means we need to commit to gathering for worship. And as we do this, we need to have the day in view. We read it this morning when we were taking the Lord's Supper. Paul says we do this until Christ returns. So we gather here with the day in view, or at least we ought to, and to encourage one another in light of that day which is approaching. You know the words of Hebrews chapter 10 where it says, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So we should have that day in view as we gather together and as we exhort and encourage one another. And this leads naturally to another point here, We are meant to help one another. We're meant to help each other to stay awake and ready for the Lord's return. I'm going to piggyback again on Pastor Briggs' ministries. And I will say that we need to develop and pursue biblical friendships. We need to develop and pursue biblical friendships with other believers, especially among us, this church, but certainly You may have many outside of this church, but biblical friends will encourage us, will exhort us. 
Admonish us. Biblical friends pray for one another and have spiritual conversations to keep each other sharp. You know the proverb, Proverb 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. We could say, so a man or a woman helps his friend to stay awake, spiritually speaking. If you've ever been driving at night and sleepy, you know how beneficial it is to have somebody with you. And if you're driving alone, maybe you call somebody because your friend, someone to talk to, can help you stay awake. It's the same in the Christian life. We're meant to help each other. So seek out biblical friendships. I hope each of us here can say that we have at least one good biblical friend in this church. And if you don't, then make this a priority and seek this out. And if you don't know how to go about doing that, ask somebody to help you. Ask one of your pastors or somebody else you trust to help you in finding at least one good biblical friend to help keep you sharp. A fifth thing here is to identify what I'm calling sleep inducers. Identify sleep inducers and remove them or put them in their proper place. Now, when it comes to physical sleep, some of you might struggle sleeping. Sometimes I do. Uh, Sleep inducers are a good thing. They're called aids, sleep aids. They help us. But it's not the case in the spiritual realm that sleep inducers are helpful. They are hindrances, obstacles, weights, stumbling blocks in our lives. We need to give this careful thought. I want to encourage you to ask God to help you to look at your life and be honest with yourself. So what habits, what activities, or what people even might be keeping you from staying awake, might be a sleep inducer? When I say people, that might be friends, that might be an author, that might be a movie producer, it might be some celebrity. There's all sorts of things that can cause us to grow sleepy. And this thing need not be sinful in order to be harmful. It only needs to be out of place. And what I mean by that is there might be a lawful, legitimate form of recreation that we can enjoy. But to enjoy it too much and to give it too high of a place so that it takes priority over more important things could cause us to grow dull and sleepy and even worldly over time. So we need to make sure that things that might be good in themselves are put in their right place. And certainly if there's something sinful, we need to remove it. I think one of the great dangers of our day is entertainment overload. Entertainment overload. There's so many options, good entertainment options that keep us very, very entertained right at our fingertips. And that's a danger. It's like overloading on too many carbs. Eat too many carbs, what? You get sleepy. You have a crash. Overloading on too much entertainment, constantly bombarding yourself, entertaining yourself. This can have a sleep-inducing effect, spiritually speaking. A sixth thing. This is the positive side of this. We have to have both. You can't just be saying, I'm going to remove this, I'm going to remove this. We have to be adding something good. So we can't neglect the positive side. And the positive side is simply to set your mind on things above, 
where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the best things. Philippians 4, Paul, again an example to us, says this in Philippians 4, uh, verse 8. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. He says, keep your mind on these excellent things, the best things, things above. Seventhly, if you're numbering, go about your daily work and do it as unto the Lord. Go about your daily work that God has given you to do and do it as unto the Lord and not to men. Do it with an eye to pleasing your master who's coming back. Do it with the thought that you want to hear the well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus. To hear him say that to you. So whether you're a mother in the home, a student at school, an employee at work, a retiree employed in other various ways, we ought to go about our daily work that God has given us, however menial that work might be, however insignificant it might seem to you or unspiritual, go about that work and be faithful to do what God has given you to do. Like the porter or like the doorkeeper in this little story here in our text in in Mark chapter 13. We ought not to be found sleeping and not doing our job that God has given But we ought to be found working when the Lord comes, faithful to our calling. One man says it this way, that the true servant will want to be actively engaged in his master's service when he returns. I think it was Ryle that has a little note about Calvin. At the end of his life, people were saying, slow down, you're harming yourself. And he said, would you have my master find me idle when he returns? That's the idea. But no small part of staying awake and ready is simply living faithfully each day. Live faithfully each day, walking worthy of your high calling, going about your business, the work that God's given you to do. John Wesley, when he was asked how he would spend the next day if he knew that that evening Christ would return, He took out what we would say, maybe our calendar. You'd take out your phone and say, okay, what do I have going on the next day? He says, I would do that. I would do what I'm doing. I would go about my business as unto the Lord. And I think there's a lot of wisdom in the response of John Wesley to that question. Final thing here. If you would stay awake and ready for Christ's return, Then learn again from Paul, who said this. He said, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. That's in Acts 24, 16. So let us always strive to remove anything that hinders us in the way of pleasing God and of walking in holiness, and righteousness, and in godliness. 
Think of Hebrews 12 and that picture of running the race with endurance. Everything that weighs us down, the sin that so easily entangles us, we ought to cast these things off and run the race of faith, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. We could say we ought to keep short accounts with God and with men. Keep short accounts with God. Confess your sins as soon as you know them. Repent and keep short accounts with men. The Bible begins with memorable words in Genesis 1.1, but it also ends with memorable words. These words, which we have in Revelation 22, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And God helping us, let that be the cry of our hearts. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we are thankful for these moments to be together, to consider these things from your word, and we pray that you would encourage us and help us to be awake and ready. We thank you that by your grace and your grace alone, you have made us alive together with Christ. You have put it in our hearts to seek after those things which please you. And Lord, forgive us in any way in which we've become sleepy or sluggish or even worldly and grant to us repentance that we would be a people who are always awake and ready for your return and even keeping each other awake and encouraging one another, admonishing one another and all the more as we see the great day approaching. We ask in Jesus' name.